Well, as you take in your seat, grab your Bibles and uh, turn to 2 Timothy. We're in chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through this summer series called Finishing Strong. The book of 2 Timothy being Paul's last and final letter. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are walking down here, and we'd love to put a Bible into your hands. Just slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure that one gets across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, just take this one home with you. Keep this. It's our gift to you. Paul wrote in, in this letter to Timothy and reminded him of how great a weight was placed upon his shoulders as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he considers this concept of perseverance, which is one of the main thrusts of this letter, endurance, persevering till the end, finishing strong, he wants Timothy to get serious about the charge that has been given to him and this is a message for every single one of us who are in Jesus Christ. I love that Paul has already talked about the analogies of what it looks like to live the Christian life. He's talked about the soldier, he's talked about the athlete, he's talked about the farmer, and I always, as we've gone through this series, we've kind of picked up mainly on that theme of the athlete, but it really encompasses a great deal of analogies that Paul wants to draw upon, but let me just draw back upon that analogy of the athlete for one more minute. I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I was, was doing sports, my greatest weakness in training was uh, junk food. Eating healthy has always been my biggest obstacle in any kind of athletic endeavor. I love food, and the worse it is for you, the more I seem to love it. It's really sad. It really is. And you know, most um, statistics tell you, if you look at the, the, the health industry, the sports industry, they'll tell you that in training or in weight loss, if, if that's maybe more up your alley, that weight loss or, or getting active and healthy and getting to the, the pinnacle of, of achievement and, and athletic success is 80% diet, 20% exercise. The problem is that most people are inclined to put all of their eggs in the exercise basket and none of the eggs in the healthy eating basket. And so what happens is this kind of defeating cycle, right? You're going through the motions, you're doing what you think you should be doing, but you're not seeing the results and the progress that you were expecting to see. And that's because one of the most important components of success is removed from the equation. If you don't change your diet, you're not really that serious about accomplishing the end goal in front of you. You're not that serious about weight loss. You're not that serious about success on the field or on the court or whatever sport you may play. What you avoid is so often as or, listen, or more important than what you do because it has the potential to destroy or undo all of the previous gains that you have been making. There are certain things you have to do, but there are certain things that must go. And if we are going to get serious in the Christian life and on the Christian mission, we need to embrace the same principles. We gotta get clear and stay away from the junk while we embrace and stick to what is good. Paul looks at Timothy, and last week, Pastor Brian reminded us of the motivation that was required. 
he looked at Timothy, his protege in the faith, he said, Timothy, it's time to get motivated. And now he looks at him and says, Timothy, it's time to get serious. And so look what he says to Timothy, beginning in verse 14. He says these words, remind them of these things, look how serious this is, and charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There is an urgency, a seriousness, a weightiness placed upon the shoulders of Timothy. And the context reminds us that Timothy is in the midst of a lot of doctrinal error, a lot of false teaching. All you have to do is go back and read 1 Timothy, and you'll see that, that false teaching was rampant in the life of the church. It was everywhere, and, and Timothy was warned to constantly be on guard against false teachers and against the error that was creeping into the church subtly sometimes. He says, Timothy, if we are going to make progress here, if we are going to finish strong, it is about time that we get serious about this. We cannot trifle with this. It is way too serious to be treated with disdain or with some kind of apathy or complacency. What a message we need to hear in the church today. And if we're going to get serious, the first thing we're reminded of is this. We need to stay focused on the real teaching. We need to stay focused on the real teaching in verse 14. And by real, I mean the authentic, the genuine. Remember, Paul has already addressed this concept with Timothy. He's talked about the healthy or the sound doctrine, the healthy teaching. This is what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And in verse 14, he comes alongside Timothy and he says, remind them of these things. By the way, this is just a great reminder for us that so much of ministry and especially pastoral ministry is reminding people of what they've already heard. So much of what we do in the ministry of the gospel in our own lives is simply to remind our own hearts of what we already know to be true. So why? Why is that the case? Because things that have been embraced are quickly or easily forgotten. They just are. That's just a reality in life in general, but particularly in the Christian life. We're easily distracted and pushed off course, and we need to be refocused back on what we know is true. And so the implication here is for Timothy to keep on reminding the people, the church of Jesus Christ, over and over again of what is most fundamental, the real, healthy, life-giving teaching. These things refer back to all that he said already in this book, but particularly, probably most specifically, verses 8 through 11, where he has laid out the gospel of Jesus Christ as we saw last week. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. You see, the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and all that it entails. And while it points backwards to everything he's already said, all of the, the rich gospel theology and teachings that he's given, it also points forward, has a dual purpose here. It points forward to everything that Timothy is about to hear from the pen of the Apostle Paul, everything that he's about to share. You say, why is it so important that he remembers the gospel truth and the gospel implications for life and for ministry? And simply put, remembering the relative importance of time and eternity is an effective restraint against wasted time and energy in the wrong things. In other words, when you remember the right things, when you remember the best things, it helps you to avoid spending time on the worthless things, on the wrong things. And so he's constantly wanting to put before Timothy, Timothy, this is what is of eternal importance. This is what matters most. And if you can focus your attention here, you will not be worried about trifling with the things that matter very little in this life. And so he says, keep reminding the church of what's at stake. Remind them of the importance and the weightiness, the seriousness of the teachings that have been passed on to you and and you're passing on to faithful men and they're passing on to others the truth that has been entrusted to the church of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice the weightiness of this is summed up really in this phrase right here in verse 14. Did you catch this? And charge them before God. Some translations say, and charge them in the presence of God. I like that because that's the real sense of what's at stake here. It is God to whom we are all ultimately accountable for the lives we live and the truths we proclaim. It is God who will judge the living and the dead. And so he gives him this strong charge and he reminds him that ultimately you will answer to God and so will everybody that you are teaching and preaching to. It is a serious charge and it comes along with a very serious warning. Here's what it is. Look at verse 14. Not to quarrel about words. Literally, This is a warning against word battles. And he's telling Timothy to not get entangled himself and to call those in the church in Ephesus and those in the church today not to get entangled in worthless disputes with false teachers. You know, it's a very easy thing to be dragged into worthless discussions about things that oppose God's word and that are not anchored in the truth. In fact, it is one of the greatest ploys of the enemy to pull Christians away from focusing on what is real and true and to get them caught up and entangled in all kind of divisive controversies that ultimately matter very little. Such arguing can be so nuanced and it can be ego puffing with its tangled subtleties. It can sound incredibly intellectual. It can foster a kind of theological discussion which is in the end purely verbal, having nothing to do with the realities of Christian religion. And sadly, so often, so many people are attracted to these kind of conversations. And just to add the weight of it and the seriousness to it, Paul says, not only are they charged before God not to quarrel about words, listen, he gives the reason which does no good but only ruins the hearers. 
Paul had described the ruin that comes from quarreling over words earlier, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just flip back one page probably in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And he speaks of the exact same scenario, but he fleshes it out a little more and he lets you know what the ruining of the hearers ultimately looks like. In chapter 6, we'll just back right up to verse there's a, a division there in verse 2. Just follow, find the word teach and urge. The words teach and urge. Teach and urge these things. Again, there's the weightiness in the series. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, there it is, and does not agree with the sound words, that is the healthy, life-giving truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Listen to this. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, listen to this, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. I mean, that is a litany of reasons Uh, Why or destruction that's displayed through quarreling over false words, what it produces is nothing good. It produces only devastation and destruction. Hassle follows hassle, producing perpetuous ruin and conflict. In fact, this is so serious that Paul talks about this kind of an individual in Titus chapter 3, and he says, to warn a divisive person, the idea, it comes right out of the same concept of a heretic who's coming into the church and teaching false doctrine. He says this, warn him once, And if he continues, put him out. We don't mess around with false doctrine and false teachers. They can't be welcomed into the church of Jesus Christ. What we have here in the church is too precious. It is too serious. It puts an obstacle in the way, listen, of unbelievers who may be turned away from the true way of salvation confused and distracted by all kinds of of pointless discussion about things that don't matter. It also does harm to believers by causing confusion and doubt and discouragement and disobedience and distraction. You see, does this really happen that often in the church? Yes, I could sit here and tell you uh, multiple stories of people who I have seen led astray from the truth. I'll never forget, in one of our first couple years of planting the church, someone was attending the church, a woman, and she'd been kind of coming on and off and starting to get involved in the life of the church a little bit, kind of on the fringes, and she always come up and want to talk about, about really uh, strange or bizarre disputes in, in kind of the fringe Christianity groups. It was very strange. And Finally, she booked a meeting to come in and see me one day at at the office, and so we slotted some time, and she came in. I'll never forget it. She came in wheeling a a wheeled suitcase into my office, unzipped it, and began to pull out stack after stack after stack of research and pages of things that she had been scouring all over the internet. Bizarre, bizarre crazy disputes. She was paranoid about everybody who was called an evangelical. 
She was so confused, and it was, it was sad. It was really sad. I share this with you. It's sad because when we got talking, I tried to get back to, listen, I can't get into all of this right now, but let, let's talk about your spiritual life. How are you doing in the Lord? And what was very clear very quickly was that there was no desire to really do the things of the Lord. There was such a fascination with false teaching and controversy, it prevented her from doing the one thing that God was calling her to actually do, which was to go out and live the gospel and preach the gospel. And this is, this is a sad reality. We can easily be attracted to things that steal our attention and our time and, and our thoughts and our energy, and we can be busy doing things and discussing things and fighting about things and quarreling about things that ultimately matter very little or matter not at all and instead lead to massive destruction or ruin. So here, here's a principle that you just need to embrace from this. There are some arguments you lose just by entering. There are some arguments you lose just by entering. They're like black holes. You know, that gravitational pull of a black hole that literally is sucking everything in, pulling everything in, and it disappears without a trace. All of your time, all of your energy, everything disappears without a trace. It becomes worthless. You might also want to jot this down. Debate for the sake of debate is not just foolish, it's dangerous. Debate for the sake of debate is not just foolish, it's dangerous. And sadly, there are way too many Christians who love simply to debate for the sake of debate. They love to be right, and it is not just foolish, it's dangerous, especially when it gets into the trivial things that matter not, but are made to matter. I want you to see this too. It is dangerous not only to pursue these things or to partake in these discussions, it's dangerous to those who hear them. So some of you may not be inclined to debate. Did you notice here, the ruin comes to the hearers? I just think this is a really, really valuable lesson. There are some of us who don't engage in the debates, but we love to sit on the sidelines and we love to listen, right? We love to partake in that way and just know this, that there is a great danger in simply being a hearer, a willing a hearer. And Paul tells Timothy, don't be distracted by false teaching. It's time to get serious. It's time to stay focused on the real teaching that does not ruin hearers, but instead saves hearers. We cannot, get afford, we cannot afford, excuse me, to get distracted from the real teaching. And so secondly, we are called to stay vigilant about the right task. We get serious by staying focused on the real teaching, and we get serious by staying vigilant about the right task. And so while we're not supposed to be engaging in false teaching, the one thing we need to be reminded of is that we are to be very intentionally and vigilantly engaging in the right tasks, the right teachings. You'll notice that Paul mentions this really famous verse, often applied mainly to preaching God's word, but certainly applies broadly beyond that to all areas of the Christian life. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is a powerful, pointed verse 
And, and it really reminds us about the vigilance required uh, and the task that we are called to. There's four aspects, I think, built into this verse for how to do this well. How are we to be vigilant about the right task? Notice this, we need to first be putting forth the right effort. It requires the right effort. You'll notice the words there at the very beginning of the verse, do your best. Some translations say, be diligent. And I think that's the sense for sure. That's exactly the way Paul intends Timothy to hear it and the Spirit of God intends you and me to hear it. There is a diligence required. There is an effort that is put forth that is unlike any effort in life. It requires, by the way, urgency and immediate action. It is an intense effort that is being required. Now again, Paul has already used those, the, the analogies of the soldier. Remember that? The soldier who has that single-mindedness, that, that discipline, that aim of pleasing the master, but he's looked at the athlete as well who competes according to the rules, and we saw that that entails effort. But the hardworking farmer, the diligence required really seems to be the main thrust that he wants to build upon here. Already this begins to challenge our apathetic and complacent Christian culture, isn't it? We want minimum effort and maximum results. I find myself, even as we read through this, asking the question, are you really doing your best? Are you really doing your best? Are you really working hard at this with all of the effort that you can muster? Do your best. Put the time and the energy and the effort into what God has called us to do, the task before us of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and living the truth in this lost world. But secondly, we not only need the right effort, we need the right end in mind. We need the right end, the right objective, the right motivation. And you'll notice what Paul says here. He says, do your best to present yourself to God. This is a a striking reminder for us. Every one of us is going to present ourselves to God. I want you to think about this in a very real sense. I mean, I know this is in the future, but you know, life goes like that. Like we blink and it's over. That's the way it feels at least, right, with small children. You blink and it's over, and one day you are going to present yourself before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're going to stand before him, and the objective, the end game here is to be able to present yourself to God as a worker approved by God. That God would look upon you and he would say, you know what, son or daughter, I see what you have done for me. I see how you have served me. I see the effort and the intentionality. I see the way you lived your life for me and for my glory. And you have done well. The hope is that you can do so as one approved. As one approved. And the idea here is that you would be found authentic. You have to see this in light of the context. In the midst of all of these false teachers who, by the way, are are claiming to be Christians, that's the idea here, they are claiming to be true Christians. 
God is saying, no, don't you understand? You will present yourself to God, and hopefully you will be one approved, one who is authentic, one who will be pointed out and say, yes, you are actually my child. I have purchased you with my blood. I have adopted you into my family. You have been a soldier in my army. You are approved. You're the real deal. A few years back when I was traveling to Nepal, we had a, uh, I think it was a 12-hour layover in Hong Kong. And uh, we took the opportunity, we're like, I mean, how often do you get to go to Hong Kong, right? So we're like, well, let's, let's get out of this airport and let's go see Hong Kong. So we ended up going down into the uh, marketplace and they have all these districts and, and massive marketplaces. And we went into this one marketplace where you could literally find every name brand item you've ever dreamed of for dirt cheap. It was uh, for sure not the real deal, okay? Just for sure. It wasn't even like stated like it was real. It was known it was not. So I get this brilliant idea. I'm like, well, you know what? I'm like, I'm going to buy my wife something, something really nice, a Louis Vuitton purse. And I pick one out, and it, it looks like it looks good. It looks like the real thing. And I'm picking it up. I'm like, well, okay. Well, she'll appreciate the gesture at the very least, the very least. Who's going to know? Well, I, I get this, this bag. I bring it home. And, and in a matter of weeks, this thing just begins to fall apart at the seams. You know, the zipper stops working. Strap is broken. It was terribly embarrassing. She used it like twice and then threw it in the garbage. You see, it was made with cheap materials and very poor craftsmanship. It was looking to catch the eyes but when it came to the quality and the authenticity, it was far off the mark. You see, the false teachers were looking for the approval of their audience. They were looking for that surface level appreciation, catching the eyes, the veneer of something real. It even sounded like the real thing. It looked so close to the real thing. The only problem was that it began to fall apart very quickly because it was shoddy craftsmanship. It was inauthentic. But Paul focuses Timothy upon an audience of one. For it is not he who commends himself, 2 Corinthians 10, 18, that is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. These teachers were declaring that they were right. We have the truth. And everything else you're hearing from Paul and Timothy is way behind. They need to get with the times. They haven't advanced into the true spiritual light like we have. But you see, when we are focused on the right end, we are concerned very little about the, what the world thinks of us or anyone else. We are concerned only of an audience of one. So many Christians are ineffective because they care so much less than about pleasing others. So many of us, and I lump myself into this category at times in my spiritual life, so concerned about what people think about me on the outside, how they view me or perceive me, when my focus needs to be on what God thinks of me. And you see, every time I'm over here thinking about what others think of me, it leads me not to a place of more and more godliness, it leads me to a place of more and more ungodliness. 
Because the focus is in the wrong place. It's on myself. And every time, listen, you focus your gaze upon yourself, it will lead you down a path of ruin and destruction. It always does. Every time. It's time to get serious about wanting to be pleasing in the sight of God and caring not about being pleasing in the sight of man. Next, it requires the right ethic. Yes, the right effort. Yes, the right ends, but for sure, the right ethic. The imagery here is of a workman. I love this picture that is presented. Paul just so skillfully preaches to Timothy in this sense, giving him this, another analogy of the Christian life, but certainly a life of a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are to be a worker who has no need to be ashamed. The picture there is of someone who is skilled in a trade. Here, for sure, metaphorically, it is being used to describe those who labor in spiritual matters. So, by the way, that, that includes all of us who labor in the things of the Lord. We are all workers in the things of the Lord. Our hope is that we do so in such a way that we need not be ashamed. No one wants a reputation for being a poor employee or a shoddy tradesman. You've all had tradesmen in your house who have done a terrible job, who should be ashamed of the work that they've done. I was talking to somebody in our church last week, a tradesman who runs his own business, and he, he said that it's regularly occurring right now. There's a shortage of tradesmen in our culture, in our society, and, and as a result, a lot of these younger tradesmen who he hires on a regular basis will very frequently, on the day of, call him up and say, oh, by the way, I'm not coming in today. I'm decided I'm going to go have some fun somewhere else. And they do so knowing that he can't fire them because there's not enough workers out there. He actually needs them. And so they take advantage of this. And shamefully, they have no work ethic. They care not about the job being done. But he says there's a massive contrast between this new, younger generation and the older generation. He says the older generation, you can count, they show up whether they're sick or borderline dead. Every day they're there working hard, working faithfully, putting the time in, and doing the job well. How much more so, listen, when it comes to the things of the Lord? How much worse will it be to stand before God? Listen, I pray this is not any of us, but, but in my heart, knowing that some of us will stand before the Lord and will be ashamed. Oh, God, I, I didn't put any effort into the things. I poured all my, my time into the things of this world. I, I, lis I listened to something this week uh, of a man saying, his, his dad on his deathbed said to him, son, son, your job, your career matters nothing in the long run. A statement about what he poured his own life into what, and what he forgot about along the way. And at the end of his life, there was this sense of shame and regret that he did not focus on what mattered most. God, help us. Help us to stand before you as a worker who need not be ashamed. You say, well, what does that require? It requires the right expertise. You see, what produces this shame is the way we handle the word of truth. 
and hear these words from the pen of the Apostle Paul, rightly handling, correctly handling, it's been translated, correctly teaching, rightly dividing. I love this in the old King James for some of you out there. I know you're going to love this. Cutting it straight. And the idea here, listen, the, the imagery here is so pointed. It's like a farmer, same word is used in the same way, like a farmer plowing a straight furrow, like an engineer making a straight road, like a stonemason cutting a square stone so perfectly, like a priest who properly cut an animal for sacrifice unto the Lord. The word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Proverbs twice, and I just look at these verses, and I just want you to see how serious handling the word of God is and the, the, the results it produces. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will, this is a, make straight, that's the idea, cutting it straight. Make straight your paths, that's what we all want. We want straight paths, not veering to the right or to the left. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight. But the wicked falls by his own wickedness. You see, straightness deals with righteousness and truth, what is godly and honoring to him. Wrongly handling would be the reversal of this, and that would be exactly, exactly what these false teachers did. They manipulated it. They caused people to veer off the course of the straight and narrow path. But what we do is we handle the word of truth. Now listen, that is primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is the word of God. All of this points to the gospel. All of this flows from the gospel. This is all about the good news of Jesus Christ. And while they were busy, listen, the false teachers manipulating the gospel for selfish game, gain, teaching people, listen, to focus not on God, the one who deserves all praise for our salvation, but on themselves as if they were somehow deserving. We cut it straight so that the traveler may go directly to his destination. That's the idea. We cut the gospel straight so that the hearers have a straight path without being turned aside by worldly debates and ungodly talk that there's nothing good and only ruins the hearers. And so we are called, listen, church, this is so important for us to be men and women of the word of God. Do not be led off into pointless debate and controversy. Keep holding forth the gospel in a clear and pointed manner. And while others absorb themselves in pointless debate, the one that God will approve keeps clear-headed and tenaciously faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stay vigilant about the right task. Stay vigilant about the right task. Do it with the right effort. Do it with the right end in mind. Do it with the right ethic and do it with the right expertise. And then next, if you are going to get serious, you need to stay away from the repulsive trouble. You need to stay away from the repulsive trouble. Paul goes on in verse 16 through 18. He says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Irreverent babble. Some translations say empty chatter, blah, 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 right? Like, I can see your lips moving, but that's about it. 
There's never any point, though there is plenty of sound being made. It is irreverent. It describes ungodly, profane, irreligious, and vile speech. It describes the character, really, of the people revealed by the words that come out of their mouths, right? That this is an important biblical principle. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak. Your character is revealed by what comes out of your mouth. The reasons are clear. This kind of talk is at best, listen, at best, time-wasting and confusing. At best. But at worst, it leads to more and more ungodliness. More and more, that concept, uh, there's a a subtle irony here and a play on words that Paul is using. It it is progresses to more ungodliness, which is really fascinating because it seems that those false teachers who were present were teaching what's called a Gnostic heresy, meaning that they felt, felt like they had this super spiritual secret knowledge that others did not yet possess. They elevated themselves, believing that they were above the all because they had deciphered some secret knowledge. They saw themselves as progressives, but instead of progressing towards truth, they simply progressed themselves and caused others to progress to more and more ungodliness. Rather than leading people to God, you get the picture, it caused people to push away from God. The danger of false teaching is that it produces more and more ungodliness. You say, why is that? Again, I'll I'll just go back to this very simple principle. Ultimately, false teaching ends up focusing mainly on the individual. The importance of the individual is preeminent above all. And we see this fleshed out in a variety of different quasi-Christian, you know, things that fall under the umbrella of, of, of broader Christianity, where the emphasis is not on the glory of God, but on the gifts that He will give to you. It's one of the dominant ways we see this fleshing out. It's all about your personal gain. It's all about your own health. It's all about your greater wealth and and all of your prosperity. But we need to understand that that truth transforms while error erodes. And by the way, no one is exempt from this, and I think this is just an important principle. Paul is actually warning first and foremost Timothy. Timothy, this is for you. You need to be careful, Timothy. You too are susceptible from being led into more and more ungodliness, and all you have to do, no matter how mature you think you are, all you have to do is walk down the wrong path into endless word fights and battles about things that really don't matter and lead people away from the Lord. You're, you're not exempt. And while exposure to false teaching is unavoidable, I like to think of this, listen, in the the sense that that we're all be exposed to false teaching, false teaching is kind of like exposure to UV rays, okay? It is is in some senses unavoidable, but you want to do everything you can to stay away from it, okay? Because it will lead to devastating effects. Now, I just want you to back up for a minute and just broadly, I want to, I'm not suggesting any of you are false teachers in here, but what I am suggesting is this, we can learn a, a great principle from this, in terms of our own speech and conduct, do the things we say in our context of Christian fellowship, do they lead people to greater and greater godliness, or are they helping to produce greater and greater ungodliness? Maybe all of our Christian conversation just simply leaves us neutral, and by the way, that's a problem too. 
Do our conversations focus on building others up, on speaking the truth of the word of God, on pointing people back to the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, it can lead to more and more ungodliness, and that's the opposite of what we're looking for. And, and he goes on to say here that it actually spreads, look at this language, like gangrene. He gives this graphic, vile image. He wants this to, to stick in our minds. It spreads like a filthy disease. David McCullough, in his biography on John Adams who was the second president of the United States and lived through the Revolutionary War, he records the situation where John Adams was appalled at the sanitation of the Continental Army. He was once walking through a potter's field in Philadelphia, and Adams had been overcome by the thought that over 2,000 soldiers were buried there, listen, nearly all of them from smallpox and other diseases. He wrote to his wife, and here's what he said, this pithy little phrase that I think helps to illustrate what Paul is saying. He said, dirty frying pans slayed more than swords. For every sailor killed in action or who died from wounds in the era of the American Revolution, listen to this, 17 died from disease. Listen, false teaching slays more people than all of Satan's other strategies combined. Every other strategy pales in comparison to false teaching. That's why there are so many, so many, so many warnings in the New Testament about false teaching. Error, by the way, spreads faster than truth because error already appeals to the sinful human heart that is more receptive to it. So false teaching spreads like gangrene. It spreads rapidly and it leads to potential amputation or death, especially spiritually. False teaching, by the way, always spreads from false teachers. And there are two that are named here. Did you notice that? Among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, Hymenaeus is probably the same character who's referenced in 1 Timothy 1.20 who had already been put out of the church with another guy named Alexander. Well, it appears that Hymenaeus had picked up a new sidekick and was back at stirring up the church with his false teaching. And Paul, uh, now this is, this is helpful too. Look, there is a place for naming names when it comes to false teachers. In the Christian culture, everybody's like, oh, we don't name names, we don't want to talk about people that's somehow sinful. And listen, on the whole, I would argue that that is generally true. Most people who want to name names simply want to gossip and slander others. And that's not Okay. But there is a time and a place when you're protecting the people of God where it requires the naming of names so that people stay away from those who are dangerous. Here, their error is blatant and, and it is clearly communicated by Paul. He says that they have swerved from the truth. Again, they've gone off that straight path. They are not cutting it straight. They have swerved from the truth. And here's what they're doing. Saying that the resurrection has already happened and and they're upsetting the faith of some. Their insistence that the resurrection has already happened was not primarily, by the way, about Christ's resurrection. 
It really is, is saying that the final resurrection has already happened. The great resurrection of the living and the dead, and this is a cardinal doctrine in the Christian faith. Right? We embrace Jesus Christ. We know that we are united with his death and his resurrection. We have died with him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has paid for our sins on the cross, and by his grace we are raised to life with him in newness of spiritual life. Listen, but there is a day coming. We look forward to a day where there is a future physical resurrection where we will be given new bodies fit for eternal joy if you're in Christ or eternal damnation if you are not in Jesus Christ. And that is a glorious reality that reminds us, listen, that these Gnostic teachers who emphasized only the physical or the spiritual above the physical had it actually wrong. We were always meant to exist as physical and spiritual beings. And those who are dead in the Lord and, and those of us who die before the return of Christ, we will one day be reunited with a physical body. And though that is a glorious truth when you think about a new physical existence on a perfectly refined, sinless planet, sinless bodies, a sinless existence, it's deeper than that. And they come along and they say, the great resurrection of the living and the dead has already taken place. You see, it was always and only a spiritual resurrection. It's over now, they claimed. And all the promised end time eternal realizations are now yours. You have everything already. This is it. This is what you have been waiting for. And here's the reality, though. Listen, the damning thing about this teaching, apart from its blatant untruthfulness, is that it attacked the reality of Jesus' physical resurrection. The physical resurrection of believers is so linked to Christ that if Christians are not physically resurrected, that would prove Christ had not been bodily resurrected either. Paul argues this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14. Listen to what he says. This is how important this truth is. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You say, how? How does that make logical gospel sense? Because if Jesus Christ did not raise physically from the dead, then death is still our greatest enemy and sin still reigns supreme. And we there will, therefore will be judged by God and all of us, every single one of us will be damned to hell. You see why it's upsetting the faith of some? This is so serious. And this gangrenous teaching had been sugar-coated and wrapped in Hymenaeus and Philetus' smiling declaration that they had the fullness of the resurrection now. I mean, the message was so appealing. By the way, never trust someone who smiles repeatedly. Just saying. You get the fullness now. Get this, listen, listen to this appeal. You get all the fullness of the resurrection now. All of it is already here. All of its health, all of its wealth, and all of its privilege, and all of its power. And this was the good news, they said. Paul? Paul's preaching? Look at him. <laughs> he's got it. Clearly, he's got it wrong. He's the one in prison. He's got nothing. He's about to get his head chopped off. That can't be the truth that you need to embrace. That's leading nowhere good. It's leading only to death. You see how this could be so persuasively argued. 
If he had the authentic good news, he would be living like us. He would be like a king. But their so-called gospel was pure, unadulterated anthrax. And with it, they destroyed the faith of some. Can I just share with you that uh, sadly I have seen, even in the life of this church, people who have been pulled into false teaching, embracing it wholesale, and the false teachers are out there, and I'm not just talking about Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or other religions. I'm talking about people who claim to be Christians but simply use Christianity as a means to an end, as a means to great, great financial gain, as a means of manipulating and abusing people, and they promise others things that are not true. False teachers abound in the Christian faith, right? Satan is a counterfeit. You have to understand the war we're fighting. The reason that this is so, listen, even in the first century, right after like Jesus Christ had gone, like the warnings are so rapid. Watch out for false teachers, watch out for false teachers. Guard, guard sound doctrine. Why? Because false teachers are going to spread like crazy where God is promoting true teachers of the gospel to go out and save sinners. Satan is promoting false teachers of his false gospel to go out and ruin and damn unbelievers. And so the more, listen, the more the truth goes forward, the more Satan ramps up the assault with false teachers, and you, all you have to do is go listen to quasi-Christian radio or watch quasi-Christian television stations or go into a Christian bookstore or, or just look on the internet. Don't, don't do it, but it's there. I sat in my office with somebody trying to pull up YouTube video after YouTube video of a false teacher that they had found to be so fascinating and unlocked deep and mysterious truths that nobody in all of the evangelical church for thousands of years has ever known. Listen, if it's new, it's not true. And sadly, and it's hard, like, watching people drift into this and trying to rescue them and pull them back, but they're already gone. It happens, it happens, sadly, it happens. And listen, can I just encourage you, guard yourself in terms of what you expose yourself. Just because it has the label Christianity does not make it true Christianity. And if if at all you're concerned or you're worried or you're trying to navigate through this because you're not sure, simply come and ask somebody who's more spiritually mature. Come to the leadership of the church. We would love to put good resources into your hands to point you towards good teachers who are gonna build you up in godliness and not lead you down a path of ungodliness and destruction of your soul. And so you need to stay away from the repulsive trouble. And lastly, you need to stay grounded in the reassuring truth. Paul ends, listen, this really serious, and I know this is weighty. It's weighty, listen, because the text is weighty. But Paul wants to, to land on this note of reassurance and encouragement and comfort for those who are truly followers of Jesus Christ. He knows that this is a battle. The war is being waged. You see, how will it turn out for Paul and Timothy in relation to those who are rebelling against God's word? Men like Hymenaeus and Philetus and how will it turn out for all of those who try to stand firm and guard the truth throughout the centuries of the growth of the church. Paul gives the answer right here in verse 19. 
And it is so reassuring. This truth is so potent and, and builds up our strength and hope. He says, but God's firm foundation stands. It doesn't matter what these false teachers throw at you. It doesn't matter how successful they appear to be. They can fill stadiums with people, but you need to know this. God's firm foundation stands. See, what is that firm foundation that will stand in the face of this kind of warfare and this kind of onslaught? True believers of the church of Jesus Christ, that is God's firm foundation. The gospel of Jesus Christ that has been entrusted to them secures them and preserves them and protects them, and God will make sure they advance with power and that his mission will be fulfilled. His firm foundation stands and the church, true church, listen, will not be swayed by heresy. They will stand firm on the truth of the words of Jesus Christ that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Tim, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, he says this, that the church is the household of God, the church of the living God. It is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It is the place, the, the, the repository of the truth. That's what the church is. And on that promise, notice this, we have God's seal. A seal is a sign of ownership. Think of a signet ring that was stamped on a letter to authenticate the one who sent it. You know, the book of Revelation talks about those in the end times who will have the seal of God upon their forehead that will protect them and will mark them out as one of God's own. Those who are God's will be authenticated. And we see God's seal in two ways. First, we see a seal anchored in His security. It's anchored in His security. The Lord knows those who are His. That is the security of God on behalf of true followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul here, you need to see, this is really fascinating. Paul quotes from the book of Numbers right here. When some Israelites were about to rebel against the Lord and his appointed leader Moses and Aaron, Moses declared to Korah the rebellion of Korah and those who were rebelling with him in, in Numbers 16.5. Listen, this is what he's picking up on here. And he said to Korah and all his company in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near, the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. You see, Korah was standing up against Moses and Aaron and with a bunch of rebels, they were coming up against the Lord's messengers and saying, you guys aren't the true leaders. You guys don't speak for God. And Moses says, God will show you who are his. God will show you who are his. So let's all gather together and we'll find out. Let's let the Lord separate the wheat and the chaff. Let's let the Lord separate the sheep from the goats. Let's let the Lord expose the hearts of all mankind. And by the way, that is exactly what God will do. And at the same time, these words are a sovereign comfort to the church. For Moses, you want Moses knew? Moses knew, I know I speak for the Lord. I know I am the Lord's. I know he has called me and commissioned me. I know the Lord goes with me. I don't know who you think you are, but I know that I am the Lord's. 
What a powerful, life-giving, holding truth for our own souls. When the ultimate fires of judgment fall upon the earth and all of the cosmos is nothing but a cinder and pile of ashes, the Lord will know who are His. Jesus had said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I love this promise. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Some think that this became a proverbial saying of comfort in the early church. You want to know something? It still is today. Listen, church. The Lord knows who are His. Secondly, God's seal is revealed in my sanctification. It is anchored in His security, but it is revealed in my sanctification. And the very last portion of verse 19, He says, And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You see, those who would take comfort in the first inscription must take responsibility for the second And it appears that he is actually drawing from the book of Numbers again in Numbers 16, verse 26. He says this, and he spoke to the congregation. This is a little bit later after this event, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. You see what he's saying? He's like, if you're with them, stick with them. But if you're not, you better move away from them and all of their ungodliness and wickedness. Show yourself separate so that you too are not swept away into their judgment. This is a proverb as well. Because that is the way it is with all true believers. They turn away from wickedness. Knowing the deep things of God demands deep things from us. And none of us do this perfectly, but as a pattern of our lives, we who know the Lord and who are known by the Lord, we depart from iniquity. We separate ourselves away from sin and we devote ourselves unto God in obedience, loving, joyful obedience to Him. There is no sovereign election apart from our sanctification. It is written on our souls. Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Listen to this. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. While we may have difficulty at times discerning the faithful from the faithless, God cannot be fooled. He knows those who are His, and it will always be revealed in our lives lived out for Him. So church, listen, you see, God is serious. God is serious about the church. He is serious about the truth. He is serious about His children. But this is all-out war. The enemy is serious about tearing down God's church. The enemy is serious about tearing down God's truth. The enemy is serious about tearing God, daring down God's children. And God is serious about protecting and preserving and proclaiming what is life-giving and life-changing. Are you serious about what God is serious about? God leads the charge. 
He is our commander-in-chief. There is no one more serious than him, and there is no one more worthy to be followed. He calls us to follow his lead, and so he calls us, listen, open up the cupboards and the refrigerators of your heart and clear out all the junk. Fill them up with what is right and true, what is healthy and life-giving. Stay away from what will undo all of the spiritual gains. You are working so hard by the grace and power of the Spirit of God that is within you to bring about, and that will ultimately bring great ruin and disaster to your life. It is time to get serious about the battle that we are in.